Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. He doesn't have a bipartisan bill. Nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, May 27, 2014. I'll begin this week's podcast by discussing President Obama's official nomination of Sean Donovan to lead the Office of Management and Budget, as well as Julian Castro to lead the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. I'll also provide an update on the Expire Act in the Senate and tax extenders in the House. In our New Market Tax Credit segment, I'll share the names of six new co-sponsors for the New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act. I also have information on testimony on the President's budget for the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund and the name of a new qualified issuer for the CDFI Bond Guarantee Program. In this week's local housing tax credit section, I summarize a bill introduced last week to create a permanent tax rate floor for both the 9% and the 4% low-income housing tax credit. I also discuss fiscal year 2015 funding for rural housing and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, as well as an increase in tax credit compliance fees in Louisiana. In historic tax credit news, I'll discuss a report that suggests that cities that preserve and reuse older, smaller buildings fare better in the long term, and I'll also alert listeners to a new grant program, an alert that comes in part from the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. Finally, in Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, I discussed two amendments recently introduced by Senator Tom Carper. They would extend the 30% investment tax credit and clarify that waste heat to power technology qualifies for the investment tax credit. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, as I mentioned last week, President Barack Obama has nominated U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development Secretary Sean Donovan to lead the Office of Management and Budget. He also nominated San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro to fill the soon-to-be-vacant top spot at HUD. On Friday, President Obama officially announced their nominations. He praised both men for their work in housing and community development. He said that Donovan's use of data at HUD has solved problems and saved taxpayer dollars. He added that Donovan helped build strong, sustainable neighborhoods and reduce homelessness among veterans. The president also praised Donovan for his work spearheading the Hurricane Sandy cleanup efforts. The president then focused on Castro, praising his work and revitalizing San Antonio. He said that Castro has helped attract hundreds of millions of dollars of investment to downtown San Antonio. And he has planned thousands of housing units for the area. Additionally, he said Castro has built relationships with mayors throughout the country and become a leader in housing and economic development. In accepting the nomination, Castro said that the country is in a, quote, century of cities, end quote, and that he wanted to, quote, ensure that we do housing right, end quote. The nominations will now be passed on to the Senate for approval. I'll keep you updated on the progress of the nominations in future podcasts and send out a tweet with the news of any confirmations. Now, turning to tax extenders, more particularly 
In Senate tax extenders news, I'm afraid I have nothing new to report. After the bill failed to gain ground two weeks ago, there's been no movement. The Senate broke for its Memorial Day recess without discussing the bill further. The Senate returns, by the way, next week on June 2nd. I do note that on May 20th, a group of more than 150 business and trade organizations, including Novogratz and Company, by the way, sent a letter to senators asking them to pass the Expire Act as soon as possible. The signatories said that the laying extenders legislation adversely affects businesses. Now, turning to the House, as noted in my tweets last week, the House Ways and Means Committee is expected to hold a markup of a second group of tax extenders this week. The focus is expected to be on charitable and individual provisions. The low-income housing tax credit, renewable energy tax credit, new market tax credit, and historic tax credits are not expected to be discussed in this Ways and Means hearing. As always, I'll keep you updated on extenders legislation in future podcasts. In new markets tax credit news, I'd like to begin with an update on the status of support for the New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act. Since last week, six more representatives have signed on as sponsors. There are two Republicans, Representative Steve Daines of Montana and Tom Latham of Iowa, and four Democrats, Bill Prasco from New Jersey, Danny Davis from Illinois, Colin Peterson from Minnesota, and Lois Franco from Florida. That brings the number of co-sponsors up to 52. To learn more about H.R. 4365 and to read a copy of the bill, visit www.newmarketscredits.com. And for even more details about the status of this bill, come to our New Market Tax Credit Conference in Washington, D.C. in two weeks. In other legislative news, last week, Acting Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions Amias Garrity spoke before the Senate Subcommittee on Financial Services and General Government about the fiscal year 2015 budget proposal for the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund. Specifically, he spoke in support of the President's fiscal year 2015 budget request for the CDFI Fund. For fiscal year 2015, and that's the period October 1, 2014 to September 30, 2015, the President requested $225 million to enable the CDFI Fund to support three initiatives. Those would be the CDFI Fund's flagship program, the CDFI program. The CDFI program spurs economic growth and increases access to capital in low-income communities. There's also the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, which supports the growth of businesses that increase access to affordable, healthy food in low-income communities. And there's the Native American CDFI Assistance Program. That program increases access to credit capital, and financial services in Native communities. The President's budget would also provide resources for the administration of the CDFI fund and provide a one-year extension of the CDFI Bond Guarantee Program. The CDFI Bond Guarantee Program provides a source of long-term capital to financial institutions that support lending in underserved communities. In his remarks supporting the administration's request, Garrity noted CDFI's strong track records. He told lawmakers that the data indicate that, on average, 70% of CDFI's customers are low income and 60% are members of a minority community. Garrity also highlighted the CDFI fund's efforts to serve urban and rural areas proportionately, noting during the last 10 years, 25% 
of CDFI projects have been in non-metropolitan areas. According to CDFI fund program data, awardees have created or maintained more than 35,000 full-time jobs for low-income communities, originated nearly 6,500 small business and micro-enterprise loans, financed almost 18,000 units of affordable housing, and made more than 24,000 loans and investments, totaling almost $2 billion. You can read the text of his prepared remarks online at www.cdfifund.gov. Finally, in New Markets Tax Credit news, I have an update on the CDFI Bond Guarantee Program. The CDFI Fund announced last week that it selected the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, also known as WIDA, as a qualified issuer for the fiscal year 2014 round. Now, the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority may issue bonds and make loans to eligible CDFIs for investments in low-income and distressed communities across the country. Congress authorized Treasury to guarantee up to $750 million in bonds for the 2014 round of the program. WIDA is the program's fourth qualified issuer. Three other qualified issuers were previously approved under the fiscal year 2013 round. They are the Community Reinvestment Fund, the Opportunity Finance Network, and Tri-Sale Funding Corporation, which is, a, which is a subsidiary of Bank of America. And while we're on the subject, I would like to remind listeners of a few important bond guarantee program application deadlines that are quickly approaching. The last day the CDFI fund will accept questions regarding the fiscal year 2014 application for the CDFI bond guarantee program is June 18th, and qualified issuer applications must be submitted by June 23rd, and guarantee applications must be submitted by June 30th. To learn more about the program and the upcoming application round, I recommend listening to the May 20th 2014 edition of Tax Credit Tuesday. Furthermore, if you have any questions, I encourage you to contact my partner, Diana Letzinger, in our Long Beach, California office. In local housing tax credit news, I'm pleased to report that last week, Representatives Pat Tiberi and Richard Neal introduced a bill that would create a permanent floor for the local housing tax credit rate percentage. The bill would establish a 9% credit rate floor for new rental construction and rehabilitation, and a 4% floor for acquisition costs. Furthermore, the bill would only affect the amount of long-lasting tax credits that a finance agency could make available to a particular project. It would not affect the overall amount of state credits available to be allocated. This bill comes on the heels of the expiration of a temporary 9% floor originally created as part of the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008. Representative Tiberi said in a press release that this bill would help developers continue to create jobs and increase housing availability for more low-income individuals. Representative Neal said that the bill leverages private capital to invest in more affordable housing. If passed into law, the amendments made by this bill would apply to buildings placed in service after December 31, 2013. The bill has 24 co-sponsors, 14 Republicans, and 10 Democrats, and more significantly, more than half of Ways and Means Republicans signed on as co-sponsors, and half of Ways and Means Democrats also supported the bill. The text of the legislation and information about co-sponsors for H.R. 4717 can be found at our Affordable Housing Resource Center 
at www.tashcredithousing.com. In other long housing tax credit news, we have updates from Washington on funding for rural housing. Earlier this month, both the House and Senate Agriculture and Rural Development Appropriations Subcommittees approved their fiscal year 2015 bills by voice vote. The House bill would provide nearly $21 billion in discretionary funding, which includes $3 billion for rural development programs. The House Appropriations Committee, though, hasn't announced yet when it will consider the bill. Meanwhile, the Senate bill has a suggested budget of nearly $21 billion, which includes $1 billion for rental assistance, which is unfortunately $16 million less than fiscal year 2014, though it does renew all expiring rental assistance agreements. The Senate Appropriations Committee approved the bill unanimously last week with a bipartisan vote of 30 to 0 in favor. That bill now goes to the full Senate for consideration. In other funding news, the House Appropriations Committee also approved its fiscal year 2015 bill for transportation, housing, and urban development, or THUD. It allocates a little more than $40 billion to HUD programs. That's almost $770 million below the fiscal year 2014 level and $2 billion below the administration's funding request. It hasn't been announced yet when the bill will go before the full Senate. The Senate THUD subcommittee is expected to mark up its own funding bill in early June. Now, turning to state-level news, compliance fees for low-income tax credit properties in Louisiana are set to go up soon. So even if you're not developing properties in Louisiana, it's worth noting to see if this trend starts to take weight and be adopted in other states. More specifically, earlier this month, the Louisiana Joint Legislative Committee on the Budget approved a compliance fee increase that will go into effect beginning with the next funding round. The Louisiana Housing Corporation, or LHC, will increase its compliance fee from $5 to $33 per unit. That's right, Louisiana is increasing its fees by $28 per unit for properties that receive new LIHTC funding. Now, to provide a little perspective on this increase, Consider that Louisiana has charged $5 a unit since 1989. LHC said that while most states adjust fees annually to account for increases in direct costs, Louisiana hasn't adjusted its fee in 25 years. According to LHC, $33 per unit is in line with the national average. Louisiana's fee increase will only apply, though, to new developments not currently being funded under the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program. In an email to stakeholders, LHC said that the fee increase would make the state's process more efficient and effective by improving property oversight. In related news, a bill that would make it easier for LHC to adjust its fees in the future was approved by the full Senate last week. Under present law, LHC can only charge fees that were charged by its predecessor, the Louisiana Housing Finance Agency. If enacted, the bill would remove that restriction. The bill is now awaiting the governor's signature. You can find a copy of Louisiana Bill 1144 on our state legislation page at www.taxcredithousing.com. And if you have questions about compliance or the loan housing tax credit more generally, contact my partner Jim Kroger in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. Turning to historic tax credit news, the National Trust for Historic Preservation and Preservation Green Lab recently released a report 
that demonstrates the important role that older, smaller buildings play in the development of sustainable cities. The name of the report is Older, Smaller, Better, measuring how the character of buildings and blocks influences urban vitality. The research for this report is focused on three cities, San Francisco, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. This report examines not only historically designated or older buildings, but all buildings. In order to analyze the role of older buildings in a city, researchers empirically documented the age, diversity of age, and size of buildings. They then statistically assessed the relationships between these characteristics and 40 economic, social, cultural, and environmental performance metrics. The report found that neighborhoods that contain a mix of older, smaller buildings of diverse age support greater levels of economic and social activity than areas dominated by newer, larger buildings. From these findings, the report suggested applying a number of principles to other metropolitan areas across the country. These principles include, but are not limited to, supporting neighborhood evolution, not revolution. Here it suggests that the rate at which cities change is important. The report says that successful cities and districts evolve over time. The report also says another principle is it's good to make it easier to reuse small buildings. The report illustrates the value of keeping older, smaller, diverse age buildings in full use. It suggests that cities should make it easier to reuse old buildings. This can be done by removing barriers, such as outdated zoning codes and parking requirements, and by streamlining permitting and approval processes. According to Preservation Green Lab, this study is the first phase of a broader research agenda focused on the role that older buildings play in sustainable development. I'll be sure to update listeners on any new information regarding historic preservation that Preservation Green Lab releases in the future. To read the report, go to www.preservationnation.org. Or, if you have questions about renovating an historic building, I encourage you to contact my partner, Dan Smith, and our Dover, Ohio office. Now, let's turn to the National Park Service Historic Preservation Fund Competitive Grant Program. Recently, the National Park Service issued a request for proposals in order to guide the distribution of newly awarded grant funds to states to fund developments preserving the heritage of underrepresented communities. It's expected that 20 to 50 grants will be awarded, ranging from $25,000 to $75,000 each. In anticipation of this program, last year, the Department of the Interior issued a call for proposals from all 50 states and U.S. territories. More than 100 proposals were received from 46 states, the District of Columbia, and American Samoa. Now, the National Park Service is asking state historic preservation officers to review the proposals that were submitted last year, add to or refine them if necessary, and resubmit the proposals. According to the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, in order to receive funding, developments must support the survey, inventory, and designation of historic properties that are associated with communities currently underrepresented in statewide inventories of historic properties, as determined by the State Historic Preservation Officers. I'd like for listeners to know that the Grant Application Review Panel will give special consideration to developments that engage and employ youth. Now, within one year of the completion of a grant, all developments must result in the submission of a new nomination to the National Register of Historic Places or the amendment 
to an existing national register nomination to include underrepresented populations. State Historic Preservation Officers must submit their proposals no later than June 30, 2014. To read more about the Historic Preservation Fund Competitive Grant Program, go to www.achp.gov. We'll close out this week's podcast with some renewable energy tax credit news. Earlier this month, U.S. Senator Tom Carper from Delaware led a group of lawmakers, bipartisan group I should add, in filing two proposed amendments to the Senate Tax Extenders Bill. The first amendment would extend the 30% investment tax credit for the first 3,000 megawatts of qualifying offshore wind projects. The second amendment would clarify that waste heat-to-power technology qualifies for the investment tax credit. As you know, the Senate Tax Extenders Bill is still stalled, and there's a good chance there won't be meaningful progress with tax extenders until after the election. Despite the delay, it is encouraging to see these amendments are receiving bipartisan support. As always, we'll monitor the situation and keep you updated. And if you have any questions in the meantime, please contact my partner, Tony Graponi, in our Boston office. Tony can be reached at 617-330-1920. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. And I'd like to remind you, send suggestions for topics or other comments to cpas at novoco.com. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.